All right. Let's get going. We've been in the series, Whatever Happened to the Power of God, kind of examining the different uh, things that we're seeing today around the world, and we begin to do a little bit of a transition. We started off looking at is why do we not see the Spirit of God moving today like we see in Scripture? We see supernatural things happening all over the place, and yet it seems to be in our country, in America, we don't see them very often. It's, we see them. Things happen, but it's not very often, and of course, we have, there are always critics. But today, like no other day, is a day that we look at one of the most incredible days that happened, the resurrection of Jesus. It's the resurrection of Jesus is the reason that we come together as the body of Christ, that we come together to worship God. It's because if Jesus didn't really raise from the dead, then we are still in our sins, according to Paul. But he tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, and we'll, we'll read part of that at the end, is that he did do that, and not only did he do it, but he was seen by Peter, he was seen by the twelve, he was seen by over 500 at once, and he tells the people that he's writing to in Corinth, and said, if you don't believe what I'm saying, many of these people are still alive, go ask them, because they watched him die. They saw him, because you got to understand, the difference between what we do today and what they did back then, they handled dead bodies all the time. What happens for us when grandma's at home and she passes away and she, she dies in her sleep? What do we do? We call somebody else. Come take grandma. Now, sometimes we do that when she's still alive, too. Like, listen, you take this lady for a while. I'm out. All right? We do it with our children. It's kind of like the circle of life. We're just going to talk about circles all day long today, okay? But, but these guys took him from the cross. They knew a dead body. You cannot mistake a live body from a dead body because there's all these theories out there. Well, he didn't really die. They just thought he was dead. Well, I'm sorry. They dealt with death all the time. So there's no question that he died. There's also no question that the tomb was empty. Because all they had to do is if the, the uh, disciples are making it up, is go to the tomb. If the body's still there, he didn't really rise from the dead. But maybe he, they stole the body and they hit him. Well, that's a possibility, but it's not realistic. And the reason for that is every one of the 12 disciples died for what they believe. Now, people die all the time for a lie. But they don't die for a lie that they know is a lie. They die for a lie that they know is a true. Or they believe is a true. They, if, they, if they think that that's true, they're willing to lay down their lives for it. Every one of these guys did it. It only takes one to break faction and say, okay, yeah, we made it up. We hid the body over here. You don't lay down your life for that. But these guys did, and they did so willingly. And it's not just the writings of scriptures. We have writings from the ancient times that talk about this kind of thing. Sometimes they say it's a hallucination. You know, they just they think they saw Jesus. Or it was a copycat, somebody that looked like Jesus and kind of sounded like Jesus, and the disciples were just mistaken. Well, first of all, they were see Jesus was seen by over 500 people at once. You might hallucinate, but there's no such thing as group hallucinations. Okay? It doesn't work that way. Also, if he was an imposter and wasn't really Jesus, the disciples would have known because they spent every day with the man. They talked to him every single day. Somebody might call you on the phone and you might mistake them from somebody else, but somebody that you have an intimate relationship with, you'll never mistake them in person. It's like when I call my wife now and my daughter answers the phone, I'm having a hard time distinguishing between the two. So I have to, you know, make sure I'm not saying anything I don't want my daughter to know. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's getting to that point. So the idea here is that certainly... All the evidence points to Jesus actually dying and rising from the dead. There's, there's just, it's unmistakable other than the fact that we just don't want to believe. And that is the greatest power of God that we have seen on this earth since mankind has been in existence. Because people don't just rise from the dead all the time. 
If they did, mentors would be out of business. And I'm sure he appreciates that not happening. But what we see here is the power of God in play. And then it goes in Scripture and says that that same power that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us. So if that's the case, where'd he go? What happened to him? He disappeared. Well, last week we got into this. We began to look at these memorials. We started in Psalm chapter 77. That's where we're going to start today. In verse 10. It says, And I said this. This is my anguish. But I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will surely remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will also meditate on all your work and talk of your deeds. David is writing this here, and he's sitting there saying, like, I will remember all the things that you have done. I will remember all the works that you have done. I'll meditate. I will think about those things because with those things brings me hope. It brings me confidence to know that you are who you say that you are. And we began to look at that through the Old Testament. And watch what would happen is that when the Israelites, or anybody for that matter, had some sort of a milestone, something happened, they would build an altar, they would build a pillar, they would build a memorial. That way when they looked at it, they would remember God did exactly what He said He would do. Exactly what He said He would do. We talked about primarily looking at when they crossed over the Jordan, the Israelites going into the promised land. God told them, I said, you get the Levites, they grab the Ark of the Covenant. They're going to go in there first. And when their feet touch the water, the waters will be parted and they'll be standing on dry land. And then he said, when you get to the other side, grab 12 men, each man, one from each tribe, grab a stone, go over and you build a memorial. And when your children ask you, what is that pile of rocks for? You'll tell them that we crossed over into the promised land on dry land, just as God had said. You see, we have these things in our lives now. We all have something when, that we, we got from our parents, maybe if after our parents passed away or something, that when we look at it, it brings up a memory. It brings up something. Sometimes it's a smell. You smell something, and it reminds you of an event. Right? Sometimes those events are good, and sometimes those are events are bad. But the bottom line is, is it triggers something. It's the same concept. They did this throughout the entire Old Testament. It was all over the place. And remember what we talked about. That the creation itself in Romans 1 is enough to hold mankind accountable because God's invisible attributes are in that. That they know God, yet they reject Him. They choose to worship the creation rather than the cre uh, Creator. So as we get into this, we're going to, again, look at this concept of these memorials because it's so important, because I'm going to tie this all up today. Remember we talked about that when um, uh, John the Baptist was baptizing Jesus and the Pharisees had come to him and he's getting into his ministry and he says that God will even raise worshipers of him from these stones. He's standing there at the Jordan. It's the very same stones that Joshua had laid out. It was a memorial to God. So let's look at this first. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 14. Then God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and seasons and for days for years and let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He also made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, so the evening and the morning were the fourth day. So we have the creation account in Genesis. And on day four, God creates the lights in the firmament. Remember, God created light already, but He's creating a light source in the firmament, in the inside here of the atmosphere, if you will, or, or, or however you want to say that. And it tells us the reason He does that. It's to divide the day from the night. Okay, fair enough. Then He says, let them be for signs and seasons, for days and for years. Four things here. 
Signs, seasons, days, and years. Now, let me ask you this. When we think about light, we know what time it is based off the sun, right? We can look. If it's right above us, it's noon. Put it on either side of us, you can kind of get a pretty good guess. That's why they had sundials. It's based off of that. Thank God we moved on from there. We'd all be dead. But we have here a, a, a way to tell the day from the night, all of this stuff, because of the rotation of the earth and all that's going on. But the four reasons that he gives here, signs, seasons, days, and years. But the question is, days and years, no big deal. We think of seasons. What do we think? Fall, summer, we're in spring right now. Thank God winter finally ended. Hallelujah. Can I get an amen? amen. All right. And then it flooded. So there we are. But, but what about signs? What does the sun have to do with signs, and what does that mean? And does the word seasons actually mean fall, winter, spring, and summer? And the answer to both of those questions is no, it doesn't. Because I want you to see this. Look at this word here. This is the word for signs. This is Hebrew. Anybody here speak Hebrew? Me neither. But look what it said. This is the, the Hebrew word used here for sign. It's a wonder. It's a marvel. It's a mark, a banner, an emblem, a token. These are all the different definitions of this word used. It's used throughout the entire Old Testament. You get into the New Testament and it's Greek. And it says in Mark 16, as an example, these signs will follow them that believe. What is a sign? It is a marker of an event that has taken place. So the light, in this case we're talking about the sunlight, it gives a sign of something. It gives a sign of something. But what about seasons? What is that talking about? And this is where we're going. Go to the next one. Now, look at this. This is the meaning of the Hebrew word for seasons here. A place of meeting, an assembly point, the appointed feast, feast time, set feast, set time, seasons, appointed meeting places, so on and so forth. What on earth is this talking about? It is not talking about summer, fall, winter. It's not talking about that. It's talking about the appointed feast. The Hebrew word here is moedim. The moedim means it's an appointed time set by God. You see, in the Israelite world, they had these feasts. And there were seven of them, primarily. There's a few others now. But these were the ones ordained by God. You had three in the spring, one in the summer, three in the fall. All having to do with the time of the harvest. Planting, harvest, all that kind of stuff. In the summer, we get to Pentecost, which is the next one that will be coming up on here, and it's uh, 50 days out. But today, actually yesterday, as a matter of fact, was Passover. You realize that Easter is not the celebration that God had. It was Passover. It was the Passover lamb. So what are we talking about? Well, let's look at this. Leviticus chapter 23, because I want to show you this word in, in play here. Verse 1, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and say to them, The feast of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocation, these are my feasts. What is the feast talking about there? It's the same Hebrew word, moedim. You see, we've, been, we've misunderstood this text for a long time. Because God's trying to get something out here. We see in Exodus chapter 12, the, where the Passover comes from. Exodus chapter 12, we're going to start in verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be the beginning of your month. It shall be the first month of the year to you. So he's changing things here. He's changing the calendar. We'll come back to that. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb. Keep that tenth of the month in mind here. According to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb... 
Let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons, according to each man's need. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread, that's important, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw nor boiled at all with uh, water, but roasted in fire, its head, its legs, and its entrails. Anybody hungry yet? All right. You shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. You sh- so you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Why do they have to have their sandals on and all this other stuff? Because they need to be ready to roll. Because remember, they are in Egypt. Verse 12, I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the house where you are. A sign? Going back to that same word. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Now you know why it's called Passover. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this day shall be a, to you a memorial. And you shall keep it as a feast of the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Now, I don't want to dig too much into the weeds about what Passover is. Let me put it this way. The three spring feasts were fulfilled by Jesus. You have Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits. Jesus was our unleavened bread Because there was no sin in him. Leaven is used throughout the Bible as a symbol of sin. He was our Passover lamb. Remember what John the Baptist said when he saw him. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What's he talking about? The Passover lamb. So you've got that, you've got unleavened bread, and then you have first fruits, the resurrection of Jesus, the first fruit among many. So that is what's going on here. There's this whole rigor memorial, but the basics are this, is that at the time of the Passover, they were required to, if they wanted to survive this judgment, it is judgment coming on the nation, because God is coming through, he's going against the gods of Egypt, and these people are going to be taken out because they are his chosen people. And so in order for the the uh, death angel to pass over them that they had to kill the lamb they had to consume the lamb but the most important step is you had to take that blood of the lamb and apply it to your doorpost and we always see these cute pictures of like a little dot up here and a little dot up here and a little dot over here that's not how they did it because they would swipe it like this in the shape of a cross it was going across did they know the cross anything like that of course not because it hadn't been invented yet Jesus being crucified on a cross was prophesied 500 years before the Romans invented it. So here we've got the Passover happening. He passed over the house. What happens if they didn't do it? They'd be subject to the same judgment. So killing the lamb wasn't enough. Eating it wasn't enough. They had to go and pick the lamb on the 10th day. They had to inspect it. It had to be without spot, without blemish. It had to be perfect. So they would bring the lamb into the household, and the kids would get attached to it, kind of like when you bring a puppy home, you find a stray, it ain't staying here, don't name it, whatever you do, don't name it, once you name it, it's not leaving, that's how that works. So they bring it in, and they have to examine it, make sure it's perfect, they find a blemish in it at all. It doesn't count. It cannot be a Passover lamb. Go back to the time of the birth of Jesus, I talked about this around Christmas time, is that the reason that 
the angel came to the shepherd and said, you will find a baby lying in a manger. Go and find him. He never told them where they were. And the reason he didn't is because these guys would know. Because there were these things called Megdal Eaters. There were these towers. And this one, these shepherds were not normal shepherds. These were shepherds of the Levites, were of the priests. And these were the ones responsible for breeding the Passover lambs. And what would happen, and you get the picture here, is that when a lamb is born, it thrashes and all of that. But remember, they had to be perfect. No broken bones, no bruising, anything like that. And so when they were born, they would take them and they would wrap them in swaddling cloths and lie them in these stone mangers until they calmed down. That's how they knew exactly where to find them because it's a picture. It's always been a picture. The Passover lamb and Jesus are one and the same. Now, there's a number of things that happen here. I talked about the calendar. The calendar for the Israelites, they work on two. Let's look at this. Nisan 1, which is where we are right here, it's in that March-April range, they go on a lunar calendar, or we're on a solar calendar, so they have mostly 30-day months, and you have these feasts. So here we have the Passover. Now originally, Tishri was the first month. That is why the Jewish New Year is in Rosh Hashanah, because they go off a ceremonial calendar, and of course the regular calendar. And so God said, today, now Nisan will be the first month for you. And this is when they celebrate Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits. And it was required that every able-bodied male Jew had to go back to Jerusalem during these times. Later, Shavuot, this will be uh, Pentecost. So you guys see what's happening here. The tenth month, they had to go and pick the lamb. They bring it in, they'd inspect it. Now remember last week when we talked about the Israelites getting ready to go over into the promised land. They had to cross the Jordan. And before they got there, or before they, they went too far, they stopped what they were doing, and they get across. Now look at this, Joshua chapter 4, verse 19. Now the people came up from the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they camped in Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. So what were they supposed to do? What did they do? They stopped. Why is, it ten, why is that in there? You ever think about that? Why, why does that matter? Because there's a picture of something that's taking place here. You see, every word, every letter has been put in Scripture by the Holy Spirit. And it's not without meaning. So you have the Passover lamb that they would select on the 10th. You've got, I'm just going to put Joshua, but it's the Israelites. They crossed over on the 10th. But watch what they did when they crossed over. In Joshua chapter 5, we're going to jump ahead a little bit. Verse 1, so it was when all the kings of the Amorites who were on the west side of the Jordan, all the kings of the Canaanites who were on the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel until they had crossed over, their heart melted, and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel. Listen, if you've got people coming after you and you know they're coming after you and you've got a river that is flooded so it's not easy to cross, and you're thinking, oh, I'm okay, and then suddenly you find out, oh, they made it across on dry land because God was with them, you might be a little worried as well. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives for yourselves and circumcise the sons of Israel again the second time. So Joshua made flint knives for himself and circumcised the sons of Israel at the hill of, at the, hill of the foreskin. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt, who were males, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way. After they had come up out of Egypt. For all the people who came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness on the way... 
they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness till all the people who were men of war who came out of Egypt were consumed because they did not obey the voice of the Lord to whom the Lord swore that he would not show them the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers that he would give us a land flowing with milk and honey. Then Joshua circumcised their sons whom he raised up in their place for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. So what's happening here? Remember, the, at Kadesh Barnea, the Israelites, they sent in 12 spies. Joshua and Caleb come back and say, listen, we can take this. Yeah, they're giants. Yeah, it's going to be tough. But God said, we can do it. We can do it. But 10 of them came back and said, no, we can't. We can't do that. They'll kill us. We are grasshoppers in their sight. This is not possible. And so they obeyed the voice of the people and they cried out against Moses and said, we need a leader. We need to go back to Egypt. Let's go back into slavery because it was a lot better there. At least we weren't going to die in the wilderness. And so because of that, judgment comes down. They're not allowed to enter into the promised land. And so all those people had died. All the children under the age of 20 lived, but they hadn't been circumcised because they weren't doing that. But what is circumcision? Because it's important. We've got to understand exactly what that is. And so what circumcision is, it started with Abraham is that you will be circumcised. This is a sign of the covenant. What was the covenant? The land that I'm giving you. It belongs to you. I'm giving this to you. Underneath the Mosaic covenant, it was another sign saying the same thing, going back that we are one with God, we are obedient to Him. These people were not underneath that covenant because they had not fulfilled the sign of that covenant. Thus, before they took the promised land, before they went into where God had, had prepared for them, that God had set up for them, all they had to do was go in and take it. They decided we need to get underneath the covenant. Okay? Verse 8. So it was when he had finished circumcising all the people that they stayed in their places in the camp till they were healed. Then the Lord has said to Joshua, This day I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Therefore the name of the place is called Gilgal to this day. Now watch what they do. Now the children of Israel camped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho and they ate of produce of the land the day of the Passover unleavened bread and parched grain on the very same day then the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten the produce of the land and the children of Israel no longer had manna but they ate food of the land of Canaan that year. So again, watch what's happening here. They, in, they crossed on the 10th. They enter underneath the, the guise of the covenant becoming obedient to the commands of the Lord, and then they kept the Passover. Now you would think, if this is just practicality speaking, listen, we can deal with that stuff later, let's go in and take this land. But the Passover was for every generation. And so they stopped what they were doing, that means they had the lambs, that they had inspected them, that they were perfect and flawless, and they kept the Passover and the whole feast and everything that's going on at this point. So, got the lamb picked on the 10th, and then on the 14th, he was killed and consumed. Now it gets a little confusing because you'll see sometimes on, on Passover being the 14th or 15th of Nisan. The reason for that is that they track their days from evening to morning. We do it the opposite. So the new day started on the evening. It gets confusing a little bit because it's just a little bit different. But the new day always started. So the 14th, 15th, the lamb was killed at twilight, right? So what does that have to do with anything? Well, we're talking about Easter, which is really the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus. But it really harkens back to Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits. Now let's look at this. In John chapter 12, verse 1, because I want, to wa I want you to watch what takes place. Then 
Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus who was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. All right, so this is John writing. So Lazarus had been in Bethany. He had raised him from the dead a while back. We're six days before. Let's do the math. That takes us back to approximately Nisan 8 to Nisan 9, somewhere in that range, depending on how, what the time frame was. could be either one. Okay? So you guys know where we're at. We're coming up on the 10th. That matters. Verse 2, There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And of the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Now remember, this is expensive. This is a year's wages. I mean, this is not cheap. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. He had no interest in what was going on. He just wanted the money. But Jesus said, Let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that he might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. The chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. Now why did they believe in Jesus? Yeah, somebody raises somebody from the dead, you got my attention, I'll give you that. But it's more important, when you look back at it, remember what happened. That word gets to Jesus that Lazarus is sick. And Jesus, having the ability to heal people, you would think, hey, let's go. Let's get, let's get after it. Let's get, get going. Or he could simply speak the word because we watch him do that as well, right? But he doesn't. He loves Lazarus. He loves Mary and Martha. He loves all these people. You're going to see when he gets there eventually that he weeps because there's a compassion there. But he tells them, he tells the disciples, it is better for you that we wait than to go now. Now, why is that? Why is it better for them? Why does it matter? Because it says, on the fourth day, after Lazarus had died, they went. It says it twice in that passage. On the fourth day, after Lazarus had died, he had gone. Why does that make any difference? It, there were four miracles that the Jews believed only the Messiah could perform. One of which was the ability to raise somebody from the dead on the fourth day. On the, up to the third day, they believed the spirit of a man stayed with the man and that he could be raised from the dead up until that point. But on the fourth day, only God himself could do this. That is why John is so clear to put in there it was on the fourth day because this is proving to everybody that he truly is God. So why were the Pharisees plotting to kill Lazarus? Because he's standing living proof that Jesus is the Messiah. You have to remember, they were not confused of whether he really was the Messiah. They chose to reject him. It's the same thing we do today. People make a choice and they choose to re reject Jesus. Romans 1. That since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes have been clearly seen by the things that are made. Now, watch verse 12. So we're at Nisan 8 to 9. The next day, a great multitude had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. What day? Or what, what feast? Passover. So, Jesus is in here. Great multitude comes to Jerusalem because they heard Jesus was going to be there. There's going to be a great multitude there anyway. They took branches 
a palm tree and went out to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, for your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciple did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, when they remembered that these things were written about him, and that they had done these things to him. So they remember after the fact all of this going on, but during the time they had no idea what was taking place. But think about this. He is in Bethany on Nisan 8 and Nisan 9. It's a Sabbath and they're on a Sabbath, they are not allowed to travel more than one kilometer. So it would be a two-day journey, approximately, from Bethany to Jerusalem. And Lazarus here, raised from the dead, they're sitting there. Jesus goes in. On what day? He rides into Jerusalem on the 10th of Nisan. So here we have Jesus. On the 10th, he rides in to Jerusalem. So the 10th, they were to pick the lamb. On the 10th, they crossed over to the river. And on the 10th, Jesus rides in to Jerusalem. What happens during that time? He's inspected. He stands before Pilate. He goes in there and Pilate says, I find no fault with him. That's just not words of innocence. It's a declaration. That He is this spotless Lamb. The picture fits perfectly. But there's a greater picture that's going on here that you kind of got to understand the Passover supper in order to understand what's happening. I'm going to read you out of Exodus chapter 6. I'm going to start in verse 6. It says, Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgment. And I will take you as my people. I will be your God. And then you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. You see, what's happening here is there are four cups in the Passover meal. I've got a picture here. And they take them from the passage I just read you. That I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from your slavery. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. They call the first cup the cup to sanctification. The second cup, the cup of deliverance. The third cup, the cup of redemption. And the fourth cup, the cup of praise. Now sometimes they have a little different name they throw on them, but that's the gist of it. They take them from this passage. In Exodus 6, he's getting ready to tell these people, I'm going to take you out. I'm going to do all of these things. And he makes promises. And so, when Jesus comes and He enters into Jerusalem, they're getting ready for the Passover. And so, they're going to sit down with the disciples and He's going to have a meal. What is that meal? It is the Passover meal. What do we call it? The Lord's Supper. Let's look at Luke chapter 22. Verse 14. When the hour had come, He sat down and the twelve apostles with Him. Then He said to them, With fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you. Before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now what does that mean? He tells them it's going to be fulfilled. I'm never going to do this again until it's fulfilled. So that is a marker to us that there is a greater meaning to this. There must be a fulfillment of the Passover. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Okay, that's fine. He takes the cup. There's one cup. They refill it four times. But look what he says in Luke 22. 
Verse 19. And he took the bread, gave thanks, and he broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. What do we do? We're talking about communion, right? What is this a part of? It's the Passover meal. But here's the key. Verse 20. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. Now this is interesting. Because during the Passover meal, cup 1 and cup 2 are always drank as a part of the meal. But cup 3 is drank when the meal is over. What's it say? He took the cup after supper. Saying this cup. Now, what does that mean? That tells us what it is. It's a, again, it's a marker. It's telling us what's going on. This is the cup of redemption. This cup, the cup of redemption, is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. So, we have the Passover as a fulfillment of the covenant. The, 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 they're, they're seeing something here. We have Joshua that enters into the same way, and they're making sure they're underneath the covenant, being obedient to God. And then Jesus himself tells us what this third cup has always been. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. The cup of redemption. So what does that mean? Well, look ahead a little bit in chapter 22, verse 39. Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives, as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. What cup? The cup of redemption. See, Jesus is being little. He told us that the cup is the new covenant in my blood. You see the cup poured out throughout the Old Testament as wrath, as judgment, and all of that. He's saying, take this cup from me. If this is possible, take this. He knows what he's getting ready to go into. He's getting ready to sweat blood. He knows everything that's going to happen. He's, he's no fool. And he says, if it's possible, take the cup of redemption from me, but not my will, yours be done. You see, what's happened here? And if you follow the story out, is Jesus is in this time frame, but He dies on the cross at twilight on the 14th of Nisan. Remember that the sun is a sign. The lights are a sign. What happened at twilight? The earth went dark. It was a supernatural thing. It wasn't supposed to be dark yet, but it went dark. It was a sign to them. You see, the sun, moon, and stars were always a sign to the Israelites. They still can be today. All of this stuff takes place and it follows this pattern to the nth degree. You see, this is where we get the idea of the gospel. Now, I mentioned this earlier, but I'm going to read it here. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel. This is Paul talking, talking to the church in Corinth. He's going to tell us exactly what the gospel is. You go to any church in the world, you ask anybody what the gospel is, they're going to say it's the good news. My question is always, what is the news and why is it good? Most of the time, they can't answer that question. They don't know. So he's going to tell us exactly what it is. By which I preach to you, which you also received, in which you stand, by which also you are saved. Okay, so here's the thing. It's probably good that you know what the gospel is because it's by that that you are saved. 
If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Now you notice he's saying there's three things. Jesus died, He was buried, and He was resurrected. But you notice he says, not according to the uh, event in history. Not according to these eyewitnesses, but according to the Scriptures. You see, because this was all laid out ahead of time. This was all prophesied. This was all a sign that the Passover lamb would be inspected and that he would die. That he was our unleavened bread and he will rise on the, on the day of first fruits. And then he goes in and makes a case. And that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve, and after that he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. You see, he's making a case. Don't just take my word for it. Go back and ask all the people that saw him die and then saw him alive. I could make up a story for you. But you get that many people together, they couldn't just make it up because the story would get confused. You see, Jesus is the fulfillment of this Passover lamb. But just like Joshua and just like Abraham and just like everybody that came before him would set up a memorial to remember the power of God and the fulfillment of His promise that every time they did it, saw it, experienced it, whatever, they would remember back at the goodness of God. That is what we do when we do communion. What did Jesus say? This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which I shed for you. And it says later, do this in remembrance of me. A memorial. And so we're going to do that. We're going to receive communion together. Boys, if you would. I've got two rock stars here. They're going to pass this out. I asked them to not throw them at you, but if, you would, uh, if you'd like to, you don't have to. I can promise you they don't taste the greatest. I worked on getting nacho cheese flavor, but they were all out. So, You peel the little sleeve back on the top, and that gets the, the wafer out, and then you open up the cup part. But you see, we do this not as a religious exercise. We do this because we want to remember the goodness of God. We want to remember exactly what God did. Exactly what Jesus performed. That Jesus was the spotless Lamb of God. And when John the Baptist declared, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's exactly what He did. Jesus came on this earth with a purpose. Thanks. And He fulfilled that purpose. And it was all laid out ahead of time. And it was all laid out prophetically. See, in our Greek mind, when we think of prophecy and fulfillment, we think of somebody declares something and then it happens. But in a Hebrew mind, which is how the Scriptures were written, you've got prophecy and fulfillment, but you have it in patterns. There's patterns that are laid out. Paul quoting Luke in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, says, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which He was betrayed, took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it. He said, take, eat. This is My body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. And in the same manner, He also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in My blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till He comes. What are you proclaiming? 
the finished work of Jesus. You see, we do this as a memorial of the goodness of God. This isn't a religious practice. This isn't a religious exercise. You can do this in your home. It doesn't have to be administered by any money. You can do this any time that you want. But when you do it, there's a reason we do it. We do it because we see exactly what Jesus did. And we do it as a memorial to Him. That when you tell your children, why do you do that? Why do you eat that nasty wafer and drink that horrible grape juice? Because let's face it, folks, it's not tasty. We tell them, we do this because God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. God didn't send His Son into the world to judge the world, but that through Him the world might be saved. It was the Passover Lamb that did that. And it was the fulfilled prophecy. So guys, together, let's do this. Father, we are so grateful. We are so grateful for what You've done. And that we'll never take it for granted. That while salvation may be free, it wasn't cheap. That Your Son willingly laid down His life on our behalf because we're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. There's not one that is good because You are the standard of goodness and we can never measure up. But but through the work of Your Son and what He's done, Father, that You can see us through Him and the work that He did, that we are saved by grace. That is Your free gift. It's through faith in Him alone. There is no other way to You. We can't create a religion that will bring us to You. We can't create an exercise that will bring us to You. There's nothing we can do that we can come to You except through Your Son. And all we have to do is receive it from Him and that free gift. And Lord, as we've done today, every time we take this bread and we drink from the cup, we do it as a memorial to what You have done. That we will never again take this lightly, but that we will always remember that work. And we are grateful that it is because of You that we are saved and made right, and that we have right standing with You, and that we are created new in Your image, that we can be Your image bearers, Lord, to take the message of the Gospel throughout the world. That we will not be so selfish, Lord, that now that we're in, that we're born again, that we won't tell other people about it, Lord, but that we will boldly from the rooftops proclaim the goodness of who You are and what You've done. And so, Father, I thank You that as we go about the rest of our day, Lord, that we never lose sight of why we celebrate. It's not about bunnies and eggs and candies or peanut butter cups, and we thank You, God, for all of them, especially the peanut butter cups. But we are here to celebrate You and the work that You've done. That is, without the resurrection of Your Son, we would still be in our sins, and it's because of the resurrection that we have hope to know that we will be with You. So, Father, we glorify You and we thank You for it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Y'all have a blessed Easter, blessed week. We'll see you soon.